Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. As long as you have the primary focus of competition being social and cultural issues, as far as voting constituencies are concerned, the populist right is going to always be advantaged over the left because the left is divided on those issues, but the populist right is not. Hello, welcome to Clan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Before we get into it today, we are planning a series on creativity. Uh, I'm trying to broaden out a bit of what we're covering again, as I've been pretty narrow on topics related to, to my book. And I'd love some guest ideas. If there's anyone you think would be just great at talking about some aspect or showing some aspect of, of how people come up with ideas, how people change their ideas, I'd love to hear it. Email me with guest ideas at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Uh, today's show, though, is with Sherry Berman, which I'm very excited about because I wanted to chat with her here for quite a long time. She She's a professor at Barnard, a political scientist. She is the author of The Primacy of Politics, Social Democracy, and the Making of Europe's 20th Century, of The Social Democratic Moment, Ideas and Politics, and the Making of Interwar Europe. Uh, so as you might intuit from that, she studies social democracy, and she studies it particularly in Europe. And as the idea of social democracy, or as we call it here, democratic socialism, has risen in American politics, I've been wanting to have a conversation with somebody who studies it in Europe, because you could see it in a much more clarified way there. You can see what it is and what it is responded to and how it has fared. Um, Social democratic parties are undergoing a lot of challenges right now in particular, and so trying to understand why those are, why they... uh, ended up losing so much ground to, I don't know, we, you'll hear and hear that the the terms are a little bit contested, but neoliberal left parties, um, technocratic left parties, and the, and the issues are having now in competition with the populist right. I think sometimes getting out of the specific American context can actually help you understand what is going on here quite a bit more. And also just understanding what is going on in Europe is important uh, in its own terms. So I'm very glad Sherry was able to join me for this. She is fantastic on these issues. And I think you all are really going to enjoy it. So here, without further ado, is Sherry Berman. Sherry Berman, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. So I'm excited to have this conversation. I've been a fan of and learned so much from your work on social democracy over the years. And, and I wanted to begin there. We have in the past, you know, five, 
six, seven years in America, begun to hear the word social democrat a lot or democratic socialist a lot. From the European context, what does that mean? So that's a great question because those are indeed terms that we sort of have been throwing around a lot in the U.S., but we don't have as strong or as deep a history of movements with those names as they have in Europe. So in Europe, the term social democracy essentially refers to a part of the left that um, embraces or accepts, I would say rather, capitalism, but also believes in a strong state role in regulating markets, in protecting people from some of the um, downsides of capitalism, in regulating the pace of change. So social democrats are capitalists in some sense. They don't want to get rid of the capitalist system, but they do believe that it is potentially dangerous and that therefore you need strong states to protect citizens from some of its, as I said, sort of downsides or destabilizing consequences. How is that different than in America, what we would consider a liberal? So the differences on policy can often be quite thin. Historically, there's been, for example, a lot of cooperation between folks who've called themselves social democrats in Europe and people who have called themselves progressive or left liberals because they often are willing to accept similar types of policies. The differences come, I would say, in their views of capitalism. So social democrats accept capitalism because they see it as the best system for producing growth, for encouraging innovation and because they believe that there is a value in separating economic from political power. But they're very conscious of capitalism's downsides, not just economic downsides, but social and political downsides as well. Liberals tend to be much, um, much less critical of capitalism. They tend not to see its downsides and they tend to be somewhat more suspicious of the state. So again, in a sort of flip side of social democrats, social democrats are critical but accepting of capitalism and much more um, willing to use the democratic state to intervene. Liberals are much more accepting of capitalism and a little wary of overusing the state to intervene in markets. But on a practical level, um, they've cooperated a lot in the past and they've agreed on, again, some broad policies like, you know, the viability um, or rather the need for a welfare state, um, the need for governments to intervene at various times to sort of, um, you know, correct markets and things of that nature. Um, so they overlap, but they differ again in um, the way they view capitalism and in the way they view the relationship, I would say, between states and markets. So one of the reasons I think it's useful to look at Europe here is that the, the multi-party democracies allow you to see these distinctions a bit more sharply than in America where almost everybody, though obviously not actually everybody on the left, ends up in coalition in the Democratic Party, right? Bernie Sanders functionally is a, is a member of the Democratic Party, even if for a long time he, he denied registration or did not register. In Europe, where do social Democrats and what you think of as the, as the liberal or less left parties, where do they diverge from each other? I, I know you're saying that there's often a lot of cooperation on policy, but, but what are the places where you end up seeing the tensions emerge? Well, I mean, you now have a situation in Europe, as you said, where, um, you know, generally in proportional representation systems, you have more than two parties. In a lot of European countries now, you have many parties, which is um, a sort of interesting and I would say problematic development over the past years. But now what you have actually is traditional social democratic parties who find themselves kind of jammed between new left parties on their left and liberal or Christian democratic parties that are slightly 
to their right. So, I mean, social democratic parties differ from parties on a variety of different kind of levels. From far left parties, they may differ on the emphasis they place on things like the environment and new left issues like immigration or identity. Um, to further left parties who have a deeper root, let's say, in um, communist, old communist parties that are further left on economic issues. There, again, the difference is that social Democrats generally kind of accept capitalism, although are wary of it. Um, and so they're not as interested in, um, you know, sort of hyper regulation or um, sort of trying to roll back globalization or trying to kind of rein in markets to quite the same degree as sort of parties that are further to the left of them economically. Again, in the past, those would have been communist parties. Now what you have is a variety of kind of, again, further left parties economically. But they also, again, face parties that are sort of slightly to their right, um, liberal parties in some places, Christian democratic parties, that again, in Europe, willingly accept the welfare state, but probably want less of it than social Democrats do, are more favorable to capitalism, and again, you know, generally are somewhat less interventionist than social democratic parties are. But um, you now, of course, also have populist right-wing parties, which have become quite leftist in many of their um, economic policies. And so social Democrats now found them, find themselves surrounded by all kinds of parties that have basically kind of, you know, moved around them um, and thereby made it much more difficult for them to maneuver. In the European context, would Bernie Sanders fit in comfortably as a social democrat? Yes. I mean, he calls himself a democratic socialist in the United States because, I would imagine, we don't have a strong social democratic tradition. And so what exists is the Democratic Socialists of America, which was kind of a home for all those people who found the Democratic Party too centrist for their liking. But the policies he advocates, his sort of general view, I think, of the relationship between markets and the state puts him much more in a social democratic tradition as far as, you know, Europeans would consider it than a, a democratic socialist one. So let me move to neoliberalism, because this is a term that gets thrown around a lot now. And it has, I think, a clear lineage in Europe, but it also ends up describing, I think it ends up describing more than people intended to describe. So, so in the European context, when you talk about a neoliberal, what are you talking about? Basically, you know, you're talking about someone who very much favored rolling back a lot of the agreements and policies that in Europe characterized the post-war era. And basically that is, you know, shorthand would be Keynesian welfare states. And that just basically means, again, enough social protection to ensure that citizens didn't suffer from economic dislocation and economic downturns and a government that was willing to intervene to sort of protect societies from, you know, too great swings in the economy, high levels of unemployment, um, things like that. And so neoliberals were basically folks in the European context who wanted to roll back that post-war order and wanted to, again, retract the state from the market, free markets up, cut back on social protections, liberalize the economy with a small L. In the, you know, in the sense of kind of classical liberalism, not in the sense of being more progressive as liberal means in the United States. So one of the things I wonder about that is you often hear neoliberal talked about as a reform movement on the center left. So Tony Blair is often considered a neoliberal. And I do think of 
Blair as somebody who tried to pull the government back from the market. But I don't think of him in general as somebody who tried to reduce the amount of social welfare protections people had. In fact, there were things like universal child allowances that he, he tried to increase. So is that a different strain of neoliberalism or am I misunderstanding his legacy? So that's a great question. I mean, and this gets back actually to something you raised earlier, which is what is the difference between sort of, let's say, progressive liberals and social Democrats? And I would say Blair probably fit much more in that sort of progressive liberal category in the sense that he recognized the value and the need for social protection, but he was less critical of markets and capitalism than many of his social democratic counterparts in Europe, especially um, during the post-war era had been. So again, if you think about Blair, as you said, he was not a sort of chopper of the welfare state. He did not try to completely roll back social protections, but he did very much favor the freeing up of markets. He was much less critical towards capitalism and globalization than, again, many traditional social Democrats certainly would have been in the past. And so he really moved the Labor Party closer to the center, but he was not right wing in any way that I think makes sense. I mean, you have to see him again in context of his time. I mean, I think Margaret Thatcher made a, you know, a sort of famous or infamous quip that her most, um, one of her proudest legacies was Tony Blair, right? And by that, merely she meant that she had forced the Labor Party to move closer to the center, certainly not where she was, but further to the center than it had been before she had come to power. And so so again, I think it's more correct to see Blair, yes, as having moved his party to the center, but certainly not to the right. And he certainly was no conservative on um, economic or social policy. And this seems to me to happen in the American conversation, too, that as I understand the academic definitions of neoliberal, like the traditional definition of neoliberal, what you're describing is Ronald Reagan, right? Thatcher's counterpart here. But what people mean nowadays when they say it is something more like Barack Obama or maybe Bill Clinton. And there's a tension in that in, in terms of are we actually changing the definition of neoliberal to mean these sort of center left movements? Or are we just talking about people who are operating within a consensus that folks feel was created by the Reagans and the Thatchers of, a, of an earlier generation? Yeah, I mean, I agree that the term is often now used as an epithet by people further on the left. And um, that's not only to kind of smear folks on the center left who they disagree with, but also I think because they genuinely don't see a huge difference between someone like Blair or Obama and Thatcher and Reagan in the sense that they feel that although obviously they had differences policy-wise, what joined them was a kind of un, a relatively uncritical view of globalization, of capitalism and markets. And so from their perspective, while yes, more welfare state is good, ultimately, you know, both groups in their view are culpable in allowing, again, markets to run wild, in not protecting citizens enough, in not being critical enough of capitalism. So yes, I think, you know, at some point, um, you know, the point of definitions is they're, they're supposed to clarify. Um, that's why we define things. But oftentimes they obscure when they become just simply catch-all terms for something that we don't like, um, even though we're not able to sort of differentiate carefully enough um, among different variants. And I think that has, to some degree, been what happened with neoliberalism. Although, again, originally, when the term sort of started to become more popular at the end of the 20th century, it, it referred to something as 
you said, much more like Reagan and Thatcher. That is to say, a very strong desire both to free markets and to significantly draw back states in a way that folks like Obama or Tony Blair or Gerhard Schroeder in Germany simply did not, you know, did not agree with. But I think this is, I don't mind the ways in which definitions move. I, I, I very much take your point that it can be used as an epithet of, against anybody people don't like on the center left. But I, I do think one of the valuable things of this era is that there is a questioning of more fundamental assumptions than there was before. And to frame a lot of the argument happening in the Democratic Party specifically, although you see hints of it in the Republican Party too, about this fundamental orientation towards capitalism. Do you think capitalism is great, but has been misused, which, you know, is, say, the Elizabeth Warren take on this, right? She, she'll say, I'm a capitalist in my bones, but her view is that the, the markets are improperly regulated, that, that people have oligarchic power over them. Or someone like Bernie Sanders, who, while I don't think he's trying to overturn capitalism, is fundamentally mistrustful of it, does not sit around talking about the great things that the market can create in terms of innovation and growth, just has a kind of temperamental distaste for capitalism itself. And then you see a bit of it. Uh, increasingly between the Tucker Carlson or even Donald Trump rhetoric, although I, don't, I wouldn't exactly say their policy prescriptions, and other parts of, of the Republican Party. Is that too a way in which America is becoming a little bit more like the, the, the European debate space where those assumptions are a little bit more up for grabs than they have been here in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if one wants to look for upsides to our current era, I think, you know, you've identified one of them, right, which is we are questioning a lot of things that we had um, left unquestioned before. Um, we're debating a lot of things that we hadn't really debated in a long time. And this is true, obviously, both on the left and on the right. I would say the kind of spectrum that you have from the Sanders position that you that you just laid out, right, which is critical of capitalism, skeptical of capitalism, but accepting of it perhaps because the alternatives are worse um, through the sort of Warren position, um, which um, is sort of, as you laid out, kind of, I'm a capitalist in my bones. I believe it is a fundamentally fabulous system for creating growth and innovation, but it needs to be checked. It needs to be overseen by states. Otherwise, it can undermine not only itself as an economic system, but it can also have, again, very pernicious social and political consequences. I would say that is the sort of social democratic range there, right? When you start getting to some of the further left positions you see from some folks in DSA, right, which is the goal um, is actually to get rid of capitalism. We understand that this is not going to happen in the short to medium term future, but we think it is a fundamentally unjust and unstable system. And so while we're not communists and are therefore not interested in violently or actively overthrowing it, our goal is ultimately a system that surpasses it. Then you're moving beyond, again, what would traditionally be a social democratic viewpoint into something that you know, might be better characterized as democratic socialist. Um, and yes, the fact that we're now seeing these kinds of debates is something quite unusual in the United States. We haven't had them, um, you know, since before the Second World War. So something that you talk about in a paper that, that you sent me before this conversation is the way in which since the Second World War, the Social Democrat parties in Europe were quite dominant um, for a very, very, very long time. And then in recent decades, they fell to more, you can call them neoliberal or technocratic center-left parties, um, New Labour in Britain being a good example of this. Do you want to tell that story a bit? What happened that the Social Democrats lost so much of their primacy in Europe? 
So, I mean, this is obviously a complicated story. Um, You know, you see um, reflections of it both in the United States and in other parts of the world, Latin America, for instance. I mean, and so basically what happened is after the Second World War in Europe, to sort of oversimplify a little bit, the main point of cleavage or the main axis of political competition was around economic issues. Um, You know, how much redistribution should we have? How large should the welfare state be? How big should the role of the state be in the economy? And, you know, when competition occurs on that level, social democratic parties were quite powerful. So they were, you know, either in government or the main opposition party in pretty much every European country for the decades after the Second World War. And that's because, again, on economic issues, they had a very clear profile. They stood, as we've discussed, for, you know, a sort of acceptance of capitalism, but an insistence that the state had to step in to protect citizens and protect societies from capitalism's potential downsides. And so when people were voting on that basis, when people were thinking about politics as a competition between different views of the relationship between the state and markets, social democrats had an incredibly powerful position, right? They were the main, again, you know, sort of party advocating, you know, more, I guess what you would say, again, left-wing views on this particular set of issues. Um, But what happens by the end of the 20th century is that these parties, as we've discussed already, move towards the center economically. And in fact, actually, also many um, parties of the right do as well. We can see that in places like, um, you know, Germany and elsewhere. After Thatcher, um, even the conservative party moves back a little bit towards the center. And so social democratic parties' distinctive on the economic dimension declines immensely. Again, as we've talked about, folks like Blair and Clinton and Schroeder move their parties very much to the center. And of course, at the same time, and I don't think these two trends are easily separated, other kinds of issues, what people think of as kind of social issues, cultural issues, identity issues, also rise um, to the top of political debate. And on these kinds of issues, actually, social Democrats found themselves in a kind of funny position because new left parties like Blair's New Labor and Clinton's New Democrats, um, they, again, had lost some of their distinctive economic profile. And so they kind of end up moving to the left on these social and cultural issues. And the traditional group that had supported social democratic parties most, members of the working class, they've historically had somewhat more conservative views on social and cultural issues, but more left-wing views on economic issues. And so as social democratic parties move away from those left-wing economic views, and they move to the, I guess you could call it left, on social and cultural issues, they begin to really lose that set of traditional voters. And of course, as we know, eventually many of those voters, particularly in Europe, end up in uh, populist right-wing parties. So I want to go back to a part in that story that feels very important to me, which is this period of time in which the politicians like Blair begin moving their left of center parties towards the center. Why do you think that happens? Because that that seems to me to be the key of the story. Again, there's lots of reasons for this. Um, You know, if we think back on that era, basically we're talking about the last decades of the um, 20th century. I think two things are really key. The first is that that post-war economic order, again, that sort of compromise between a greater role for the states but an acceptance of capitalism that you have in a watered-down version in the New Deal but much more um, explicitly in Europe, that system starts to run out of steam a little bit. So, I mean, I'm old enough to remember 
remember, you know, what you get in the late 70s is this kind of noxious combination of unemployment and inflation. And so all of a sudden, economies are not working as well as they had been for the previous, you know, 20 or 30 years. So this really opens up a space for, again, as we talked about earlier, these folks who advocate a kind of shift to neoliberalism to come in and say, okay, look, the old order isn't working. Um, Here we have a new set of ideas that both explains why we're having these terrible problems. Again, too much welfare state, too much state intervention. And we have a bunch of solutions ready to kind of solve this. That is to say, cut back on protections, roll back the state, free markets. So, I mean, the first factor is this, again, this sort of economic slowdown that hits um, the West in the 70s and 80s. And then on top of that, of course, we get the collapse of communism, um, you know, a decade or so later. And why that's important is there's really this sense of incredible triumphalism when communism collapses. There's a sense that liberal democratic capitalism has won and that it's relatively unproblematic. I mean, if you look back at the sort of rhetoric in the late 20th century and even in the years running up to the financial crisis, there was an incredible sense that, you know, the problems of capitalism had been solved, that, you know, downturns were something that could be managed or avoided, that growth was going to continue, that, you know, all kinds of good things were sort of in the future. And we didn't need, again, to worry about either an ideological competitor in the Soviet Union or, again, you know, any kinds of, um, you know, major problems in either democracy or capitalism. And so I think that also pushed people, you know, more towards the center um, economically because there was this, again, sort of triumphal and triumphalist view that, you know, capitalism and liberal democracy were the way of the future and they were relatively unproblematic. Let me offer some of the the narrative here that you hear from the right as well, because uh, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on it, which is that over this period, you at this point have in Europe in one way and in America in a, in a lesser way, you have states that have grown quite large. You have um, a lot of the big pieces of the social welfare state, particularly in Europe at that point, have been have been filled in. Taxes are reasonably high and these things are, are increasing in cost because you have to pay people more and, and these are all pretty labor intensive for the, for the most part. And people begin to feel things are sclerotic. They don't feel things are as responsive as they want them to be. And so you just have diminishing marginal returns on the social democrat vision because there isn't as much to give people. And the cost of that vision is beginning to feel more and more onerous to folks. Well, I mean, look, I think – there's something to that, but um, one has to be a little careful as well. I mean, if you look at, for instance, just basic survey data in Europe, there's no diminution in general of um, support for welfare states. And folks in Europe are willing to pay um, high taxes to a degree that most Americans find astonishing. What they want is obviously to get something in return for those taxes, right? So people are willing to pay taxes if they believe that governments are providing them with the services and the protections that they need. And so you don't have really a resistance to, again, welfare states or high taxes in Europe in the way that you have in the United States. So I think that part of the story is not is not really accurate. I mean, where there is something to be said um, and this goes back to what we were talking about previously, is clearly the the sort of many of the structures that had worked well 
over the post-war era were indeed running out of steam by the late 20th century. So welfare states, for instance, that had been designed for an industrial economy where um, there was one male breadwinner in the family, um, that person tended to hold one job his entire life. Welfare states that were designed to sort of protect people in that kind of economy had indeed become, if not counterproductive, certainly less effective in the kind of capitalist world that we were living in by the end of the 20th century, where welfare states needed to support men and women in the labor force, where they needed to help people adjust to change in the sense that it was no longer the case that people were going to hold one job their entire life. They needed to be retrained. They needed to have flexibility to move around the country. They needed to have um, policies that helped them, again, adjust to businesses going in and out, you know, businesses failing and then moving to, you know, new types of employment. And so welfare states definitely had become in some European countries, unable to perform the kind of support for efficient labor market outcomes that they had been able to, to a larger degree, to do during those 30 years after World War II. So those welfare systems that were able to help promote change, to help um, folks adjust to change, those systems did, you know, perfectly well. That's the story to, to some degree of Northern Europe. But those welfare states that really were um, designed and remained um, designed to sort of protect insiders, to not help people adjust to change, to not promote flexibility, that's the story of many Southern European welfare states. And those did become more burdensome in the sense that they weren't any more arguably contributing to economic efficiency and development, but perhaps hindering it in some important ways. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. I find that on policy questions, I'm often pretty close or closer than I would be to others uh, to a social democrat vision. 
And where I often find myself getting off the train is a bit in the political analysis. And a lot of the social Democrats I talk to have a view of the electorate that that I would characterize this way, that you can look at polls and see high levels of support, at least on initial questioning, for the social welfare state, which I completely agree with. And then that gets uh, extended to the idea that there is this big social Democrat majority, this big quite left majority out there that is being suppressed for in some way that then becomes unclear. And what what I always wonder about that is across these different systems, America, but also the multi-party and proportional systems of Europe, over recent decades until I think the last couple of years, you you did see this real fall in, in the Social Democrats. And there was plenty of opportunity for Social Democrats to run in primaries and run in elections um, and outcompete the others if the vision was as appealing as people trust it is when when delivered in a fairly pure way. And of course, there there have been in these periods politicians, individuals who have done well, but it hasn't swamped the system in the way that, say, the populist right has in some of these countries, despite a lot more efforts uh, among elites to stop the populist right from rising up. So, So I'm curious how you think about that, because there's a version of this that that argues that the public is there and just is somehow not getting the choice made. And it looks to me when I when I look at it that there's more blockage between the social democrat vision and the public than than the polls show in a way that has to be confronted more more squarely. So, I mean, I agree with you on on the broad level, which is to say people who try to read political or electoral outcomes off survey data are very badly mistaken because there's a huge amount of stuff that goes on between people's stated preferences and political outcomes. So that's always kind of dangerous. It's a place to start. It's not a place to end. Um, I think the situation is slightly different in Europe and the United States. I mean, if you look at polling data in the United States, yes, there's actually much more support for certain kinds of social welfare policies than certainly we've traditionally had in the U.S. But it's a little more complicated because as soon as you ask folks in the U.S. about paying for those policies and um, how happy they are to have, you know, national government bureaucracies supervising them, that support drops dramatically. So I'm going to put aside the U.S. for a moment, although I'm happy to come back to it and talk about Europe, where I think the situation is a little clearer, or at least I know it a little bit better, so it appears a little clearer. There, I think, actually, you know, again, the survey data is much clearer in the sense that um, when folks talk about supporting the welfare state or their willingness to pay high taxes, they're talking about something very concrete because that's been the reality there. And if you also look at the electoral data, again, because social democratic parties are not the only parties on the left, the number of folks voting for what what you might call left-wing parties has not dropped hugely. What has happened, as we've talked about before, is that that part of the political spectrum is um, more fractured now than it was during the post-war period. Um, But what you've said also about populist parties is important to throw into the mix, right? Because again, what's happened, and this is true in both Europe and the U.S., is that many people, particularly working class people, are now faced with a choice. There tend to be almost everywhere, left-wing on economic issues. But they tend to be more what we now consider to be right-wing on social and cultural issues. And so when they're faced with a choice between voting for social democratic parties or certain left parties that are still fairly left on economic issues, but are also quite left on social and cultural issues, they're torn. And so when political competition begins to focus more on social and cultural than economic issues, you get a lot of people, especially working class people, now voting for the populist right because – 
these parties have very astutely moved to the left on economic issues over the last decades. And so now working class voters don't have to trade off their economic and their social preferences as much as they would have had to in the past because populist parties on the right are now offering them both left-wing economic policies and more right-wing social and cultural ones. And so, again, they have coalesced in Europe to an incredibly large degree as relatively reliable voters for the populist right because they have, again, brought together the preference of, the, of these voters over the last decade in a way that, um, you know, has allowed them to not have to make a choice between voting on their social preferences and voting on their economic preferences. One of the things I think is interesting about that, and, and I largely agree with that, that, that analysis, is that there's a vision of political divides, which is that the left should simply stop emphasizing what people call identity issues. And one of the things that I think is is present in a lot of these campaigns that, that we've seen in Europe, um, but also that we've seen here, is Donald Trump being a great example, is that the parties begin to figure out that there is a pretty large vote share if you can be relatively left on economics and relatively right on culture and, and social issues and composition of the country issues, which I think are in some ways the real molten core of it. They force a debate on those. Right. So I think there is often a lot of desire on the left to not talk about things like immigration. Um, and then you have Donald Trump run on an immigration platform or you have Brexit come out and it becomes really a, a debate about immigration. And that seems to me to be one of the core questions faced by the left that I think people want to frame it as a strategic tension between believing in a fairly open society and a welcoming society, a diverse society, and having these left-leaning views on cultural, on, on sorry, economic issues. But I think it's an actual tension. Like it's not just like a strategic messaging choice question. It's really that these issues come up. There is a tension in your coalition, and there's not a great resolution to it because you don't get to control what people get upset about it. It's not like any one party controls the agenda, and wherever the most conflict is is where is where the debate ends up centering. Uh, so I guess one does that does that seem reasonable to you? And and two, are there parties in Europe that you think have managed that particularly well? So. This is the, you know, sort of $64,000 question, right, which is how much of this tension between social and cultural and economic issues is structural or inevitable or is malleable. I tend to think actually there's more give here than um, perhaps a lot of folks, even a lot of folks on the left do. And again, I, I'm going to talk more about Europe because I think in the United States, because of our um, particular history with racism, this is a much more difficult issue to manage or a much more, you know, it's a much more difficult circle to square, so to speak. Look, as we've already talked about, the um, the populist right, all populist right parties in Europe started off on the neoliberal side of the economic debate. So Marine Le Pen's father was much more conservative on economic issues than she is. UKIP started off as a conservative party on economic issues. The Freedom Party in Austria started off as a neoliberal party on economic issues. You go right down the board. All of these parties started off as kind of nativist and right-wing on economic issues. They all moved to the center and even the left on economic issues once the Social Democrats did the same. And so, again, if you look at 
if we go back to this question of survey data, if you look at survey data, the sort of the quadrant that is most highly populated in Europe and to some degree in the U.S. is the quadrant of people who are somewhat left wing on economic issues and somewhat right wing on social and cultural issues. And so what the populist parties did was as soon as the social democratic parties started again to move towards the center, they recognized because, you know, electoral incentives can be pretty straightforward, that their money spot was to move back into that left-wing um, spot on economic issues. And so, yes, having done that, they then shifted political competition even more to the social and cultural realm. Remember that once, you know, sort of social democratic parties and center-right parties moved to the center on economic issues, they really could no longer compete on those things, right? Because they did not offer very distinctive visions of the economy. They were more or less offering, you know, a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that. And so again, it's also no surprise that, you know, as new labor became more centrist economically, it became much more... Um, as David Goodhart had said, the party of um, anywheres is the part as opposed to the party of somewheres. That is to say, the party of sort of cosmopolitan people, incredibly accepting of diversity and multiculturalism. That's a great. So, that's a great line right there. <laughs> um, so you know there is this kind of back and forth that's going on, as you said. You know, as parties kind of recognize where the voters are, and look, the fact is, is that populist parties now in Europe, and also I would say Trump's. Republicans are facing a similar kind of potential dilemma that the Democrats are, which is to say in Europe, right-wing populist parties' constituents are very heavily working class and, you know, lower middle class, what used to be called the petite bourgeoisie, you know, shopkeepers, um, craftsmen, things like that. And what's interesting about those two groups is they are joined in their social and cultural preferences. They are more conservative. They are wary of immigration. They are rooted in particular communities. They care very much about national traditions, yada, yada, yada. But they actually are quite diverse in their economic preferences. Workers, again, tend to favor um, economically left-wing policies, but the you know sort of lower middle class tends not to. They tend to be, again, more right-wing in their economic preferences. So as long as debate focuses primarily on social and cultural issues, populist right-wing parties can hold their constituencies together, but those issues divide parties of the left. And so as long as you have the primary focus of competition being social and cultural issues, as far as voting constituencies are concerned, the populist right is going to always be advantaged over the left because the left is divided on those issues, but the populist right is not. And so when people in the United States talk about, you know, sort of de-emphasizing identity politics, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I think that they are very much cognizant of this fact, which is that the Democratic Party's constituency is quite diverse as far as sort of social and cultural background is concerned or preferences. This is, again, even more true in the European context where you have new left parties, green parties, which are very far to the left on social and cultural issues, and then social democratic parties, which kind of, you know, again, are somewhat to the left but are wary of going that far to the left for losing what remains of their traditional working class base. Um, you know, as far as the left is concerned, right, when, again, the main 
emphasis is on these social and cultural issues, they are at something of a disadvantage. It's not surprising, for instance. I mean, regardless of what you think of Trump, he has an unerring instinct for the divisions that exist within American society, and he's more than willing to exploit them to, um, you know, maximize his own appeal. And so, you know, of course, every time the so the Democrats um, end up divided on one of these issues, he is in there sort of uching them on because he knows that that is only going to weaken them and strengthen him. And again, you see this in a somewhat different way in Europe, but it's the same sort of story. And it's, you know, it's not a good one, I think, for the left. Let me ask you about labor in the UK as an example here, because I think that they've both had a very interesting trajectory on this and also are the the European political party. If uh, Americans know about any political party, they're going to know about that one. So last couple of years, they end up led surprisingly by Jeremy Corbyn. And I would say implement a strategy through Corbyn that is much more along the lines of what you're saying. They they pull back from this Blairite, new labor, more centrist party. They become less technocratic. They become much more social democratic. Jeremy Corbyn, um, I, I think, is somebody who is motivated by, by his economic policy views, not by his uh, views on culture or diversity or anything else like that. And on the one hand, I would say Corbyn has been stronger than anybody would have expected. Uh, he has both like taken over the Labour Party, which was shocking, and then he has maintained control of it. But he's also not managed to get the Labour Party towards anything even near a majority. And this has all come at a time when the Tories have, <laughs> uh, I, I think the correct term is led the UK into an ominous shambles around <laughs> Brexit. So how do you read the story of, of, of Labour under Corbyn? Is it, does it back up this thesis? Is it a problem for this thesis? Well, what, is, what, is their, what is their lesson? So, yeah, that's a great question. And, and again, the Labour Party is a kind of interesting example um, for a variety of reasons. First, as you've said, Corbyn has definitely pulled the party to the left um, economically. And that seems to be, again, quite popular um, in the British context. I don't think he's lost support for that. And in fact, again, um, I think the numbers kind of show that there is a strong, you know, willingness to accept, again, a sort of pullback from some of the um, austerity or neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, that had um, existed in Britain before that. But what's interesting, again, and what's a little worrisome is exactly as you said, I mean, it would be hard to imagine a more divided and rather pathetic opposition than you have in the Conservative Party right now. And the fact that Labor's not doing even better might be indicative of, you know, some problems. I would say actually not so much with Corbyn's economic policy per se, but with some worries again about him and perhaps, you know, the folks who he has around him. Um, there's some questions about, you know, sort of competency and all these other kinds of um, things. So I think that he does, what he's done does show that A, moving to the left economically is not problematic. B, people are really desperate for someone who is, you know, sort of outside the establishment, who seems personally uncorruptible and who represents change in the very, you know, sort of broad sense of the term. But the fact that he's not been able to make even more headway against what is, again, truly a pathetic um, opposition at this point, you know, may indicate that, again, there is some concern about his, you know, sort of competency. There is some concern about some other issues within the party, you know, how willing he is to confront perhaps some of his other um, supporters who are anti-Semitic or, um, you know, sort of some other kinds of divisions within the party. So I would say, you know, that's going to be an interesting case to watch because when there's an election, um, if he does not manage to win, I think you're going to see another swing back in the Labor 
Labour Party. If he does, then if he manages to come to power and put to rest some of these questions about competency, questions about whether or not he can manage the economy, not just to give more redistribution, but to make sure that the economy grows, you know, these are going to be things to watch, so to speak. Is there a country where the left parties, left coalitions have followed this playbook more successfully? Well, the only place in Europe right now where there is a fully left-wing government is Portugal, um, which is also a kind of interesting case because, um, by the way, the Social Democratic Party in Portugal is the party of the center-right, so it's a little confusing. The The Socialist Party, which is the main party of the, the sort of center-left, came to power, again, very explicitly on an anti-austerity platform. So after, um, you know, being forced um, to do all of these kinds of cutbacks, um, as some of the other Europe, uh, Southern European countries had been forced to do by the European Union and by other lenders. The Socialist Party, in cooperation with two parties further to the left, communists and former communists and others, ran on a ticket that basically said, no, no more austerity. If we come to power, we promise that we will reverse um, many of these policies. And so what happened after the last election is that they were able to do that. The Socialist Party came to power with the support of two left-wing parties and so formed a a clearly left-wing government. Again, not a grand coalition like exists in uh, Germany or a coalition like exists in Sweden of the Social Democratic Party with parties of the center, but a clearly left-wing government and a left-wing government that ran on a very clear, easily distinguishable economic platform, no to austerity. And in fact, since they've come to power, they have reversed many of these kinds of, um, many of the cuts that had been forced on Portugal earlier. And they have very very much kept the attention focused on, again, this economic debate between themselves and the parties to the right. And thus far, they've been relatively successful, both in maintaining a relatively high degree of support for the government and, in fact, in reversing um, a significant number of those um, policies. So, again, you have a a, a sort of case there. It is one case, right, of, again, an, a fully left-wing government running on a clearly left-wing economic platform and keeping very much the debate away from, you know, social and cultural issues and keeping the attention focused on the differences between the left and the right on economic policy. One of the ideas you hear from Americans looking with some envy at Europe is that the racial resentments we have, the cultural resentments we have, the, the the feelings of concern about about diversity and demographic change, that these are refracted through what people call economic anxiety. And that if only healthcare were more secure and equal and the tax code were more redistributive, this would change. And at the same time, you've seen uh, a very similar rise of a populist right across European countries that have much more expansive social welfare states than we do. So is there a connection or an interaction between a social welfare state and, and a society's openness in this way? Or are these just operating on different planes? Or does it actually go the other way and people get concerned about outsiders using the benefits? How do you see these things coming together? So, I mean, that's a great question and a very difficult one and one that a lot of political 
political scientists, social scientists have kind of worked on that is to say sort of how to distangle the impact of social and cultural issues or social and cultural change from economic change, economic anxiety and economic grievances. Look, there's no doubt that during bad economic times and in particular during times when um, citizens are com- feel like they are competing for resources, welfare state resources in U- the European context in particular, that their tendency to kind of take more ethno-nationalist or nativist or anti-immigrant positions um, increases. So there's lots of great research, for instance, in the European context that shows that, again, if you put um, native-born citizens in direct competition with immigrants for resources, housing, welfare state benefits, things like that, that um, you will absolutely see a rise in support for, um, you know, right-wing populist parties. Um, And that, again, is not because their attitudes have changed, right? Again, as we talked about earlier, working-class folks tend to be more conservative on these issues. But it's a question about triggering those um, attitudes to come to the forefront. And so, again, in certain types of economic contexts, you know, people's um, resentments or wariness of immigration, let's say, or of social and cultural change will become much more politically prominent, much more important in how they make their voting choices. So if one knows that there are, again, a significant number of citizens who harbor these kinds of views, the role of politicians, or rather, at the very least, the role of politicians on the left is to try to design context so as not to trigger or activate those kinds of, you know, grievances or resentments. And I think what we have seen in some European countries even more than others is, again, policies or um, situations that activated or brought to the fore these kinds of, um, you know, social and cultural concerns as opposed to, um, you know, other kinds. Um, And different kinds of welfare states, again, will do this to a greater or lesser degree. Can you talk a little bit more about that as a design question? I mean, what are some of the welfare states or the design features of welfare states that you think do this versus uh, calmness? So, all right. So let's start with a a sort of specific example just to be illustrative. So there's, for instance, been some great research, as I said, on resource competition. Um, Folks who have looked, for instance, at what happened in Austria when um, the EU said that immigrants had to be placed in line, sometimes at the front of the line for public sector housing, of which there are limited qualities, um, quantities rather. So if you look at the data, as some folks have done, in areas where immigrants were pushed at the head of the line for public sector housing, um, you found after that happened a dramatic rise in support for populist right parties. Similar kind of situation in Britain, very different context. Um, Raffaella Danziger, for instance, has looked at different um, parts of London, again, where um, immigrants and native-born citizens were put into competition for housing. Those areas saw a significant rise in support for right-wing parties as opposed to places where, again, similar numbers of immigrants, but they were not forced to compete for benefits. So, I mean, you can see those kinds of things in, you know, some relatively clear-cut um, data. Welfare states, again, that integrate immigrants rapidly into the labor market so that they're not living off the welfare state but seen as contributing to it, um, those kinds of um, welfare states tend to, again, generate less resentment, both because immigrants are seen as being not just takers but givers, and also because generally integrating them into the labor market helps to promote um, assimilation and strengthen, you know, the welfare state as opposed to weakening it. So, you know, there are, again, certain kinds of policies that one can point to that, you know, aggravate or 
alleviate some of these um, strains. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. One of the things that has been coming up a bunch in in this conversation is the difference in these multi-party systems and the diversity of ideological tendencies they're able to represent. I get a lot of emails from people asking if America's polarization problems wouldn't just be solved if we moved to some kind of proportional representation. So having studied this and living in America, what problems do you think multi-party systems solve and, and what problems do they not solve or even worsen? So that's a great question. And again, there's a lot of interesting debate on that. I mean, the the obvious advantage of a proportional representation system is that on some level, um, it's more democratic, democratic with a with a small d as opposed to a capital D. And but what I mean by that is it does allow greater diversity of views to be represented because again, if you feel like you know you you feel strongly on a certain set of issues that um, a party is not sufficiently representing, you know you can go out and form a new party and hope to sort of mobilize voters around that set of issues. That's obviously incredibly hard to do in a majoritarian first-past-the-post system like we have in the United States because voting for a third party, you know, is essentially sort of wasting your vote. It's expressive. It's not, It's not. you know, sort of anything more than that. Um, whereas in a proportional representation system, you know, you can get new parties to form as voters come to believe that, you know, existing parties no longer represent their particular concerns. So in that sense, it's more democratic. It's also more democratic in the sense that um, you tend to get a somewhat more direct translation of votes 
um, into outcomes. So again, if we think about the American system, voting for a third party, even if that party were to get, let's say, 10% of the vote, most of, often will get no seats at all. So the, those 10% of the voters who voted for that party will get no representation at all, whereas in proportional representation systems, even if you don't win a majority of the votes, you will get proportionately that number of seats, let's say, in the national parliament. So, you know, PR systems, proportional representation systems, have the advantage of being on some level more democratic. The flip side of that, however, is that they can um, further exacerbate divisions or cleavages rather than bridge them. Because, I mean, the theoretical advantage of having two big parties is that conflicts and divisions should be solved within the parties. Um, and therefore, compromises are forced to be made. Bargaining is forced to occur between people with different, you know, sort of preferences. And, you know, that can be also quite valuable because it means that, you know, you don't have more extreme voices represented in the, you know, again, let's say national parliament or something like that. Those people have to recognize in a two-party system that if they want to get anything done, they're going to have to compromise. So what you do also tend to get in proportional representation systems is a proliferation of parties, um, more extremist parties, and um, that can make it more difficult to form stable governments, which are, of course, the prerequisite for um, getting anything done. So really, I would say there's advantages and disadvantages to both systems. Um, it really depends, I think, a little bit on the time, um, you know, what the broader context is as to which kind of system is better, and also what your own personal priorities are. Do you want a system that is as reflective as possible of the electorate, in which case PR systems, again, would win out? Or do you want a system that sort of um, advantages compromise and bargaining and um, has some potential pressure not not necessarily, but potential pressure to force parties a little bit more to the center. Um, in that case, you know, majoritarian first-past-the-post systems have the advantage. Uh, I have to be honest. One of the things that has surprised me as somebody who is a bit of an, the government structure wonk and sees a lot of problems and often thinks of how you could rebuild uh, how, you know, how elections work or how parliaments function to, to solve them is how similar a lot of the trends across Europe and America and across a lot of different political systems have been in the past decade or so. There seems to be a lot more that these systems do not prevent, um, a lot more that is structurally driven than that you can actually solve in any enduring way by by tweaking representation or making like a little twist to this part. We seem to be in our governance, given how different our systems are, more alike than we are different. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think that, again, the present time is a kind of good um, reflection of that. I mean, you know, institutional changes can be important, again, sometimes um, because they um, they represent an ability to kind of, um, you know, give people an opportunity, as with PR systems, to, um, you know, to express themselves more but um, or express themselves more directly, translate their votes into outcomes. But we haven't actually seen there's not a lot of evidence in the data that there's a huge difference in broad political outcomes um, between, you know, parliamentary and presidential systems with regards to things like populism, um, between PR systems and majoritarian systems. Um, they haven't seemed to produce dramatically different political outcomes. Um, and so whether you favor them or not has to be based on other types of criteria. I think in America, we've assumed that the Trump era is fundamentally about race. And certainly in America, I think a lot of things ultimately resolve down to race. But 
the way in which he has focused his politics and his political rhetoric on immigration and the way immigration seems to have driven a lot of what is happening in Europe, do you think that the past couple of years should cause people to reassess how stable or durable societies are in the face of even relatively modest increases in immigration? So, I mean, I think one of the things that we've been forced to um, confront over the last years in the West, and this again gets back to some points that you raised earlier, is how, you know, how fragile our democracies and our societies are. That is to say, we're being forced to kind of address issues and open debates that we had sort of um, either ignored or thought had disappeared. Um, And You know, again, I think we are forced to recognize that um, democracy in diverse societies is a very delicate and difficult thing. You know, the more cleavages there are in societies, um, the more difficult politics can be. But that doesn't, diversity is not a bad thing. It's just something that has to be recognized as a challenge. And I think what Trump has done by taking the divisions that exist in American society and, you know, exacerbating them to his own advantage has forced us to recognize, again, that we need to be very cognizant of these things and we need to address these kinds of potential problems because if we don't, then, you know, there is the opportunity for someone to come up um, and, you know, sort of, again, aggravate or exacerbate these kinds of divisions. And so I think it is important to recognize that there are deep cleavages in American society and we do need... or at least folks on the left, need to think about how best to address them. Um, Otherwise, again, we leave um, the opportunity for them to um, be deepened um, in ways that are really pernicious, not only for social solidarity and social peace, but for democracy more generally. So uh, again, I think that we are being forced to kind of confront a lot of problems that um, have existed in the United States for a long time, but that we've, again, either ignored or thought had perhaps disappeared. You were talking early in the podcast, uh, I forget in response to what it was, but about the idea that, you know, if you're looking for if you're looking for silver linings, and and I often think of this as potentially one. I think that we have a tendency to look at politics across the West right now and seeing it an exclusively negative story. And I think a lot of the story is negative, right? I'm 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 as alarmed as anyone else is and and as appalled as anyone else is. But I also think that some of what we're seeing is potentially societies having to go through turbulence as they allow for conversations about diversity and change, as they open themselves up to diversity and change. And when I look around, it doesn't necessarily look like the forces of regression are actually winning. I mean, they've won some elections, but Donald Trump is not popular. Brexit is not popular. It looks to me like a lot of these populist right parties are, rather than having caught a wave and just building on it or burning themselves out a little bit. And it also looks to me like a lot of the underlying ideas keep marching forward. So recognizing that we can only tell the story from the point we're in, how plausible do you think it is that when historians look back at this period, they're not looking at a period where, you know, the populist right took the West back, but they're looking at a period where a lot of changes and advances were met with um, backlash and opposition. And it's a, you know, two or three steps forward, one or two steps back story, but then it always is. And you were never going to have, you know, the, the only way not to have these kinds of eruptions was to not actually face down these issues. And the only way to not do that would have been to close down societies in ways that, in ways that arguably would have been quite a bit worse. 
I actually agree with you 100%. And I mean, this this gets back to a sort of basic point, namely that problems can't be solved if they aren't confronted. And I think what we do see now is societies, American society, European societies, other societies being forced to confront problems um, that had existed for quite some time or had been bubbling under the surface, but that they had not been able to confront. Um, Questions about national identity, questions about diversity in the United States, questions about racism in Europe, questions about, again, changing demographics, changing nature of um, citizens and citizenry. Um, These are not problems that have emerged in the last 10 years, but they are problems that um, have emerged at the forefront of debate over the last, again, decade or so. So the optimistic view is that we are, what we are going through now, as you said, is a period of turmoil when we're being forced to confront problems that have existed for longer, but that we haven't confronted. And finally, for a variety of reasons, have emerged at the forefront of the political agenda. And if we not just confront them, but we um, come up with good solutions to them, we may see this as a time again in retrospective transition when societies dealt with problems that had, again, been too long ignored and they move forward past them. I mean, that you could tell the story, for example, of the 1960s in precisely that way, a time when we had an incredible amount of turmoil in the West, when young people and others brought to the forefront of the political agenda a whole variety of issues that had been bubbling under the surface about um, expanding notions of democracy, about minority rights, about individual freedom, um, all of these things that were forced onto the political agenda finally in the 60s and 70s. And that actually we managed to deal with, not in perfect you know, not perfectly, um, not completely, but to a large enough degree to kind of restore some, you know, sort of political stability. I mean, the best case scenario is that we look back at our time in precisely the same way when issues were forced onto the political agenda and democracies responded, not perfectly, not completely, but enough to kind of keep things going forward. Um, So I hope, you know, 10 or 15 years ago that that's the story that we tell, Um, you know, and a lot of it will depend again on how people who care about these issues, um, you know, choose to move forward. I think that is a good place to, to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always used to end, which is what are three book recommendations you have for the audience? Well, um, so I'm a political scientist, so I could give you some boring political science recommendations. But given the topics that um, we focused on now, um, there are um, a few books that I think are really great on topics about, um, you know, sort of nationalism and national identity, or at least books that I found really um, helpful for me. Um, so there's a new book out by a fellow named Andreas Wimmer, who's a colleague of mine at um, Columbia on um, nation building, which is great. It's a sort of comparative historical study of the conditions under which um, you know, strong nations are built, that is to say, strong senses of national identity emerge as opposed to societies that are, are riven by ethnic cleavages. So that's a great one. I also like anything by Kenan Malik on these kinds of issues. He has a great book called The Meaning of Race, which is really, again, I think very helpful in thinking through some of the issues of our time. And I just taught to my students, so it's on the sort of forefront of my political consciousness, a sort of long essay or short book by um, Charles Taylor called The Politics of Recognition, which really, I think, beautifully lays out, um, you know, some of the dilemmas in the more liberal version, small l, liberal version of um, how we think about societies as opposed to one that's a little bit more focused on protecting um, group identities. And so it's a sort of nice meta way of thinking about, again, some of the debates that we're having in American and European societies today. Sherry Berman, thank you very much. 
Thank you to Professor Berman for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Brittany Spengler for engineering the episode. My producer, Jeffrey Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.